So the dictionary describes the word and defines the word symbol this way. An authoritative summary of faith or doctrine. Something that stands for or suggests something else by reason of relationship, association, convention, or accidental resemblance, especially, here it is, a visible sign of something invisible. A visible sign of something invisible. And certain symbols, however, are beginning to mean absolutely nothing anymore to the American mind. Case in point, you could stand on the steps of the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. today, burn the flag, and you will be protected from being arrested by the very freedom that is represented by the item you are setting fire to in contempt. Pretty twisted, isn't it? The crucifix, another familiar symbol, precious to those who are intimately acquainted with its meaning in years past, as some of you know, has been photographed submerged in a jar of urine and marketed as art. The cross, representative of the sacrificial death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, is worn by singers and actors in plain view of the camera as they commit acts of immorality on stage and on screen while uttering outright blasphemous statements against the one who willingly gave his life for them. The meaning of this symbol has literally become victim to the trends of a secularized society. Now, symbols are an integral part of life. We communicate with them. Our thought forms are expressed through them. We drive our cars according to them now. We buy our groceries with them, laugh at them. We're moved to tears by them. We literally live our lives day in and day out by them. So, when a society becomes indifferent to the beauty of its symbols, what it does is it abandons its sensitivity to the understanding of life and barters for a meaningless existence. The beauty of any symbol lies in an accurate understanding of what is behind it. Okay? It's a visible portrait of an invisible reality. Now, the Christian faith is made up of such symbols, as I've already spoken about, two of which have been forever etched into the foundation of our faith. In church circles, we refer to them as ordinances. An ordinance is a ceremony divinely commanded or ordained to be observed as a symbol of a spiritual reality, a visible picture of an invisible fact. The church has two such ordinances. You know what they are? You can say it. They're instituted by Jesus. I think you need this sermon more than I thought you did. I'll give you a hint for the first one. On the first Sunday of every month and at other times as well, we participate in one of them and within the next couple of weeks, we'll be engaging in the second. You know what the two symbols are now? The two ordinances? Communion and baptism. Amen? The Lord's Supper. Some years ago, I preached a sermon on the who, what, where, and why of communion, and it was amazing to me how many people had never heard a sermon on the, on the topic. But this second ordinance of the church is baptism, and um, again, I want to preach on that today. And up until I first preached one here in this church, as a Christian, before I came to this church, I had never 
had heard a sermon on baptism. At least not one that explained the who, what, where, when, why, and how of it. So here we are. Let's pray. Father, help us to pay attention. Some of us may think, well, I know all about baptism. Well, I pray your Holy Spirit would renew the beauty of it to us. Touch our consciences and our souls, Lord God, with the word of truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It could be that some of you have been coming here to church for years and couldn't tell me today what the Bible says about baptism. Maybe you're new in the faith. You'd like to know what all this baptism stuff is all about. If you're anything like I was when I first came to Christ, raised in another faith tradition, you probably thought that baptism was all taken care of about two weeks after you were born, so why in the world would I have to deal with it again? Isn't it like the chicken pox? Once you've had it as a baby, you never have to worry about it again? Well, my friend, if that's you, I want you to know that baptism is nothing like the chicken pox. Okay? Baptism is a beautiful symbol that has significant meaning in our spiritual journey that we as Christians ought to understand and adhere to. Uh, we cannot become indifferent to it. So the truth I want to bring home today is absolutely relevant to the body of Christ, especially in the wake of a society that is recklessly abandoning its meaningful symbols. So here is what I want to put forth very simply today, that the beauty and the power of baptism is immersed in an accurate understanding of its meaning. Okay? So as a growing and committed follower of Christ, you ought to be aware of what's involved. So... Here are the questions that we need to answer in order for you to gain that understanding and appreciate the beauty of baptism. Why should I be baptized? What does it really mean? Who should be baptized? When should I be baptized? Where should I be baptized? How should it be done? First, and then not every single one of those points are not separate points here. We're going to work them into the whole message. First of all, though, we must understand the biblical mandate for baptism. Now, that word mandate has recently come, become very, very skeptical. You'd be skeptical about mandates, right? I could say command. Matthew 28. This is the why question. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Okay? The Great Commission. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Where's the authority lie? With Jesus, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, number one, it was prescribed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. It's pretty much a given here in this text. The only actual command in this verse, by the way, is not baptize, it's not teach, it is not go. It's make disciples. Make disciples. It assumes you're going to be going and it assumes you're going to be baptizing and it assumes you're going to be teaching. Okay? Practically, all Christian churches practice the rite of baptism. The very reason is because of this verse. It's an inseparable part of the Great Commission. Not only was baptism prescribed by Jesus, but it was also practiced by the early Christians. 
If anyone thinks that Jesus expected only his little small group of disciples to perform baptisms and that we're not commissioned to do it, you need to think again. All through the book of Acts, we can find evidence that baptism was the common practice of the church. Now, this sermon is loaded with scriptures, so I'm not going to turn to all of them, but I encourage you to take notes on this and look this up. I will touch on some of these verses a little bit later. But here it is. We find this evidence that baptism was the common practice in Acts chapter 2. First, the Jews were baptized. In Acts chapter 8, then the Samaritans were baptized. Chapter 9, Paul himself was baptized. Chapter 10, the Gentiles were baptized. And in chapters 16, 18, and 19, we find evidence that all the world, whoever came to Christ, was baptized. And if you compare that with the commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, right? In all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the world, it follows the pattern. This act of baptism in all of those groups follows that pattern. It's clear then that as the gospel was going out to the world, the people responded and were being baptized. So baptism is a fundamental part of discipleship. Now notice I said discipleship. I didn't say that you were saved by it. But I said that if you were saved, it is a natural second step or, or almost simultaneous step of discipleship. We must understand that baptism really isn't an option. If it's truly prescribed by Christ, Regarding helping people to become his committed followers, then we must obey it. For Christ said clearly that obedience is a test of true discipleship. Amen? John 8, 51, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. And in John 14, 23, says, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Okay? So the beauty of baptism then is rooted in the fact that it obeys the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. All right? Following me so far? I didn't hear that. Yeah. So the initial answer to the question, why should I be baptized, is simply because it follows Jesus' instructions. Why wouldn't you want to be baptized? That's the question really we're asking. Why wouldn't you want to be baptized? Do you love him? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not only must we understand the biblical mandate for baptism, but also secondly, we must understand the biblical meaning of baptism. Now, although nearly all Christian churches agree on the mandate of baptism, there's a widespread disagreement on the meaning of it. Obviously, there's not time to discuss every difference and nuance of interpretation concerning this issue with the various denominations that we have. I will, however, deal specifically with what we believe here in the church at Fayette to be the clear teaching of Scripture and me personally as I understand it. The word baptize is literally a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, or baptisma. There, there was no English word that corresponded with it, so we had to create an English word for it. And the word literally means to dip or to submerge or to immerse. 
Forms of the word appear in various extra-biblical Greek uh, writings where it consistently carries with it the meaning of immersion. Aristotle, Polybius, Plutarch, Strabo, Diodorus, and Josephus all wrote of things that were immersed in water and they all used the same form of the word baptizo. Okay? The concept of baptism, therefore, is one of being completely immersed into something. So much so that it, that it becomes completely identified with that thing. Okay? So, number one, baptism is an identification. That's part of the meaning. It's an identification. It's an identification first with the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? The act of baptism is a visible symbol of an invisible reality, as I've already said, in the fact that we have been placed into or immersed in Christ at salvation is an invisible spiritual reality, right? You, you can't see that when you come to Christ. You're placed into him, though, right? The outward act of baptism is a visible, physical picture of what happened invisibly and spiritually in your heart when we believe the gospel and receive the gift of Christ. At that point, we become so immersed and so identified with Christ that it is as if he becomes our clothing. You following me? Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Get it? There's also another meaning besides immerse. The word can also mean to cause to perish. Interesting. To cause to perish. As by drowning a man or sinking a ship. Now, don't worry. We're not attempting to drown you. Although, sometimes when I, you know, as I was preparing the slides for this and I was looking at some of the pictures and you'll see when it almost looks, if I was a non-believer and I didn't know anything about Christianity, I would swear that the pastor was trying to kill people when they baptized them. Yeah. And the facial expressions on some people are just amazing. But we're not trying to drown you. It's in figurative sense, though, the concept is significant because baptism is not just an identification with the person of Christ, but it's an identification with the work of Christ. The work of Christ. And what work is that? Well, Romans chapter 6. If you're following along with me. Romans chapter 6. In verses 1 to 11, bear with me as I read down through this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Okay, starting to see it now. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. In baptism, we signify that we are now so identified with Christ that our old self has died. It has been buried and resurrected to new life, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the faith, I live by faith in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ, right? Loosely translated. Baptism is itself then an act of faith and commitment to Christ's person and work of spiritual transformation. So that picture of baptism is like a death and a burial and a resurrection as identified with what Christ's work has done in us. seeing different people do different things. And I remember hearing one story about a guy that was an alcoholic before he came to Christ and he wanted to give it all up. So when the pastor baptized him, he brought a bottle of Jack Daniels with him and he held it up in the air. When the pastor immersed him in the water, he brought it down and he dropped it and let it go and came up a free man. What a picture. That's exactly what we're talking about here. So baptism is an identification with the people of Christ, thirdly, with the people of Christ. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, if you're looking along in your Bible, uh, verse 37. Now then, when they heard this, Peter's preaching, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized, and on that day there were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In the early church, baptism accompanied initiation into the believing community. It seems more and more common these days, however, that people are trying to be disassociated with the church, not identified with it. Would you say that to be true? That's unfortunate and that's sad. Not many want to take a public stand and be identified with any of these things today. It's ironic though, isn't it? As aberrant sexuality has boldly burst out of the closet, Biblical Christianity is in danger of crawling into it and taking its place. What a sad and sickening reversal, in my opinion. In the history of our church, there are records of people that after coming to faith in Jesus Christ in the winter months, were so wanting to be baptized that they absolutely could not wait until the summertime. 
And so they were so intent on being identified with the person, work, and people of Christ that they went out and chopped a hole in the ice and got baptized. And we have records of that in this church. Let me, let me read you a little excerpt from our history book. Evidently, the baptisms were not confined to the warm months. For 37 occurred, mark this, 37 occurred between December 3rd, 1816 and January 15th, 1817. 37. That's like from this section over, got baptized in those, in those short few weeks through the ice. Inasmuch as they were held out of doors in nearby ponds, they were, of course, managed by chopping away the ice and must have constituted a real test of the subject's faith, you think? Even more, perhaps, it must have placed no little strain on the endurance of the minister, you think? <laughs> on January 1st, 1817, for instance, it says this, then Elder Billings baptized Jeremiah Richards, George Manter, James Watson, Joshua Bessie, Bloomy Richards, Mary Manter, Rebecca Richards, and Ruth Sturdivant. Okay, this is January 3rd now. They were baptized in the pond near Richard Tilton's, which is the pond down the road here, the first one you come to on Route 17. That was the first place I ever did a baptism in this church, not through the ice. History book says to stand in that ice water and baptize not one but eight persons with anchor ice being raked away while the people were being baptized required real fortitude on the part of Elder Billings, a man already well along in years. Now, the latest I've ever done a baptism in this church is November, and that was cold, okay? Maybe this year I'll do one in January before I leave. <laughs> Now, this is not an isolated exceptional instance, it says, because of but a regular practice, for we find that baptisms were held just as often in the winter months as in summer and at various ponds in the town. Tilton's Pond, Wings Pond, and the pond near Craig's Mills being most often mentioned, unquote. So why would they do that? You say, they're crazy, that's why. But I like to think it was because they had a burning passion to obey Christ's teaching and to be identified with him and with the fact that he went to the cross for them, what could they do for him? Amen. Or in light of that. They were celebrating their solidarity not only with Jesus, but also with his people. You say, that's nuts, maybe, but I say that's commitment. No amount of cold water could put out the fire of their desire. And they were not afraid to let everyone know that they were Christians and not even the temperature of the water would hold them back. Now, trying to get people to be baptized today is like trying to pull teeth. It's changed. I once heard it takes, get this now, I once heard it takes 90 gallons of water to baptize a Christian, but only nine drops of rain to keep him at home. Today, people want to be baptized privately so that they won't have to stand up in front of people or be embarrassed. I wonder how we could justify that if we were face-to-face -face with one of the first Christians. Some of them were signing their own death warrants by making that public proclamation of Christ. Baptism marked them for persecution of the hardest kind. And it still goes on today. Still goes on today. In fact, when Henry was up here praying for Afghanistan, I was thinking in the back of my mind, 
I wonder if people are still being baptized in Afghanistan right now. They probably are. Yet sometimes it seems that churches today are full of closet Christians who don't even want others in the church to know that they've made a profession of Christ. Never mind out in the world. That, my friend, is a contradiction. Jesus submitted himself willingly to the humiliation of public crucifixion, and there are those who won't even step into the water in front of brothers and sisters who love him. You know, Jesus anticipated this kind of mindset actually in a much harder context than ours and minced no words in dealing with it. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, you can read about it, and maybe you don't want to, but Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. But he who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. When pastor, Texas pastor Jim Dennison was in college, he served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. And while there, he attended a small church. And at one of the church's worship services, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and be baptized. And during the service, Dennison noticed some worn-out luggage leaning against the wall of the church building. And he asked the pastor about it. And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized and told Dennison, quote, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage, unquote. Friends, and I address this to myself as well as you. Jesus doesn't need fair weather friends. He wants committed followers who are willing to be identified with him now. Not later when it's feast time, but now. I have never forgotten something that hit me hard when Marilee Colpitt's brother, Phil Eister, preached a message here at Fayette Baptist Church some years ago. As a missionary, he recounted six questions that were asked of every person being baptized in the nation of Nepal where Christianity is completely persecuted. Number one, are you willing to give up your inheritance? Number two, are you willing to lose your job? Number three, are you willing to go to jail? Number four, are you willing to die? Number five, are you willing to be a missionary? And number six, are you willing to share your faith with others? Those six questions were asked of every candidate for baptism. Let me ask you, how would we fare if those were the questions that we asked baptism candidates? See, baptism is an identification with Jesus and all that that may bring. But also, it's more than just an identification 
It's an illustration. And I've alluded to that already, but Francis Bacon once wrote that the best part of beauty is that which no picture can express. The picture is never as good as the reality, but it serves as a powerful reminder and a point of reference. As I've said already, baptism is merely the outward symbol of an inward reality. It's not the reality, but it is a powerful reminder of what happened when we placed our faith in Christ. It pictures the believer's purification from sins, which was accomplished the instant that he or she placed his or her faith in Christ. It pictures death to his old life and resurrection to the new. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. Now listen to this, Paul says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. What better picture is that than baptism? Baptism does not wash away your sins, nor does it save you. Jesus does that. Amen? It merely illustrates in graphic, tangible form what has already taken place by the Holy Spirit at salvation. In Colossians chapter 2, we read about it as well. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's talking spiritual here. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what baptism signifies. Here's a helpful analogy. And I often use this at baptisms before we baptize people. Baptism's like a wedding ring, okay? A wedding ring. It symbolizes a transaction that you have made commitment you've made, a vow you've made. A wedding ring symbolizes marriage just as a bap being baptized symbolizes salvation. Okay? Follow me now. Just as wearing a wedding ring does not make you married. Anybody can do that. Neither does merely being baptized make you a Christian. However, to continue that analogy, it used to be in the old days... My grandfather's day, and even my father and mother's day, used to be safe to assume that a woman without a wedding ring was not married. So it was in New Testament times that if a person was not baptized, it was safe to assume that he or she was not a believer. Sadly to say, that is no longer true in either case. Roger Olson writes these words. He says, the New Testament never speaks of unbaptized Christians. Rather, it assumes that baptism is a requisite for following Jesus in the fullest sense 
It's not until recently that Christians have assumed baptism as irrelevant or unnecessary. However, the very word Christian means Christ follower and rejecting or willfully neglecting baptism is disobeying Christ, he says. Now, we know that the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, right? But he was a Christian. He was a follower, you know, he was saved. But extenuating circumstances, right? What were they going to do? But that's an exception. It's not the norm. Baptism is a beautiful picture and a visible symbol of our salvation. Great spiritual significance is attached to it. It testifies to the Spirit's power in rebirthing us to new life. Amen? Life in Christ. How beautiful is that? And like a wedding ring, its beauty is not is only as effective as the meaning behind it. So the New Testament teaches that baptism is an identification, it's an illustration, and further, it's a proclamation. A proclamation. It is, as one man has said, a word in water. A word in water. Testifies to the fact that a believer has died to sin and raised to life in Christ. That's the beauty of it. It proclaims the gospel. Amen? It proclaims the gospel. In order to see the beauty and importance of baptism, we must not only understand the biblical mandate for it and the biblical meaning behind it, but finally, we need to understand the biblical manner of baptism. Who is baptism for and how is it to be performed? Questions like, should infants be baptized? Can we baptize people by pouring water on them or sprinkling water on them? Now, an accurate biblical understanding is essential here, for there are plenty of misconceptions about what the Bible does and does not say. And I suppose there really could be a fourth point to this sermon, which I won't do, but understanding the biblical misconceptions about baptism. There are many. So who should be baptized? Well, the overwhelmingly clear indication in Scripture is that it is for believers. We believe in believers' baptism here. And one of the most important considerations at this point is the extreme lack of any New Testament evidence which indicates that infants were baptized. An infant can't believe. And nobody can believe for you. You have to come to this knowledge, at least some sense of knowledge of the repentance for your sins and your acceptance of Christ. In a report of the Joint Committees on Baptism, Confirmation, and Holy Communion of the Church of England, this is the statement that we find. Quote, in every recorded case of baptism in the New Testament, the gospel has been heard and accepted and the condition of faith and presumably repentance has been consciously fulfilled prior to the reception of the sacrament of baptism. Unquote. Now, while it is possible that households may have included infants in the New Testament, there is no positive evidence nor indication that this was the case in any of those that are mentioned in the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts in chapter 16 and 18 and chapter 10. In the New Testament, only those who had personally and willingly believed the gospel message were baptized. The pattern is without argument. And again... I'll just give you the text. You can look them up later. Acts chapter 2, we've already looked at that in verses 37 to 38 and verse 41. Acts chapter 9, which I often use at baptisms, is the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. 
whom Philip met on the road, explained the scriptures to him. He wanted to be baptized. They stopped the chariot, went down into the water, and came back up. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, Gentiles being baptized. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and his household. And in Acts chapter 18, also, did you notice the pattern if you look at those texts? It's belief, then baptism. Belief, then baptism. There were no waiting periods. There were no baptism classes. There were no interviews with the elders or 20 questions by the pastors. Of course, now we do that because all kinds of people want to be baptized and you got to figure out whether they really have been saved or not, accepted Christ. But there was a simple act of faith and immediate baptism. In fact, the two were so closely connected in those days that belief and baptism almost seemed like the same act of salvation and that's why some people believe that baptism saves you. However, the clear teaching of Scripture is that baptism is not what saves. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not by an action. It's not by works. It's a gift of God that we shouldn't boast, right? It's by, it's by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And it follows then that if faith must come first, then clearly baptism is only for those who believe. Then the question, how should it be performed? What's the proper mode of baptism? Now, this is a hot-button topic, depending upon what denomination you're in or from. And we need to be careful on this point to not make the mode more important than the truth that it symbolizes, right? Following me? And Baptists have been historically famous for making this a major issue. I don't make this a major issue. I believe that the best form is by immersion, but you know what? If people can't be baptized by immersion, they're laying in a hospital bed ready to die and they want to be baptized, we'll do a little sprinkling. <laughs> we'll do a little pouring, right? It's an identification, all that other stuff. So a Presbyterian, Presbyterians usually practice sprinkling, right? So I heard this one, a Presbyterian and a Baptist minister were discussing baptism. And um, after a beautiful dissertation on the subject by the Baptist minister, the Presbyterian minister asked if the Baptist considered a person baptized if he were immersed in water up to his chin. No, said the Baptist. Is he considered baptized if he is immersed up to his nose, asked the Presbyterian. Again, the Baptist answer was, no way. Well, if you immerse him up to his eyebrows, do you consider him baptized? Nope, sorry, you don't seem to understand, said the Baptist. He must be immersed completely in water until his head is covered. And the Presbyterian says, well, that's what I've been trying to tell you all along. He says, it's only a little water on the top of the head that counts. <laughs> Folks, the real issue is faith, not the symbol. The symbol becomes more meaningful, however, when it pictures more clearly the truth behind it. And that's why I believe immersion is taught in the New Testament. Biblical evidence seems to overwhelmingly support that fact, that it's by immersion. We've already seen that the word baptize means to dip or to immerse in water. It seems that the procedure followed in Scripture was immersion rather than pouring or sprinkling water on the head. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, seems to picture coming up after being immersed, he saw heaven being opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
You know, in our minds, we picture often the Hollywood rendition of, Jesus, of John pouring water over Jesus' head, but it doesn't do justice to what the text actually says. The Greek implies that he was immersed in the Jordan, in verse 9, and came up out of the water, in verse 10. Even Acts chapter 8, the eunuch and Philip went down into the water and then came up out of the water. It says, one scholar said that immersion is somewhat of a burial, emergence, a sort of resurrection. Again, picturing what's done on the inside. It's the gospel in action. Baptism is the gospel in action. There's a powerful meaning in the act of being lowered into the water and then raised up out of it. It graphically pictures our death to sin and resurrection to new life. And it portrays our identification with the death and resurrection, burial and resurrection of Christ. And as one early British Baptist put it, quote, to be baptized is to be dipped for dead in water, unquote. While immersion may not be the only valid form, it is arguably the most symbolic, thereby preserving the beauty of the biblical meaning of baptism. Let me say this, however, as I already alluded to, Whatever the mode is used, baptism is not to be taken lightly. It's serious. It should be viewed as serious. It's an important, meaningful, and beautiful part of discipleship. And if you haven't been baptized and you're a Christian, I want to highly encourage you to think about what you've heard here today, search the scriptures, and make that decision. Because when a follower of Christ understands the meaning of baptism and is immersed in its experience, it is a deeply moving experience for everybody involved, both the person doing it and the spectators, because they're reliving their own baptism again. And many people, it psychologically cements their commitment to Christ in, in their mind, which leaves a lifelong impression, and rightly so. Jesus prescribed that it be part of our lives as disciples. So we shouldn't let its symbolism fade into meaningless existence. We must have the courage to follow the biblical teaching and become different, set apart from the world. That, as one man has written, is a rare find in our day, a Christian with courage. A believer who is growing and learning and standing strong in his walk with Christ. Let me close. Alexander Solzhenitsyn posed this crucial question. He said, must one point out that from ancient times a decline in courage has been considered the beginning of the end? Unquote. Very relevant statement to our times. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to understand our doctrinal roots and the truth behind it. Because as Chuck Swindoll once wrote, the Christian's decline in courage is becoming all too obvious. Unquote. We must therefore encourage and uphold one another for when we no longer have the courage to stand for Christ, even as in something as simple as baptism, then we will fall before the world. Guaranteed. So I'm going to show a video now. For some of you, this is going to be a walk down memory lane. From some of you, for some of you, it'll be all brand new. 
But I believe that there's nothing better than to have a visual picture of all that I just preached about. And I want to give you an invitation that if you have not been baptized and you desire to be, after this video, I want you to come forward and give me your name if you desire that or speak to Pastor Henry out at the door as you leave. We'll put you on the list and we'll contact you this week. But beyond that, as you watch this video, recognize the meaning behind every single person that you see baptized. That there's been a repentance from sin and an, an, an acceptance of who Christ is and the work on the cross that he has accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. And they have become Christ followers when they received Christ. And if you have never done that, that's the first step. So I invite you to come forward about that too. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the beauty of the symbol of baptism. It truly reflects the inner heart and I pray, almighty God, that if there's anyone here, Lord, today that needs to do that, to proclaim their faith in a public setting, that you would move their hearts to do it. Father, we want to glorify you in all things and so we pray now that the Holy Spirit would have his way and that truth would prevail. And give us strength, Lord God, to stand firm for Christ in this perverse and hurting generation, as the scripture says. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.